This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Welcome everyone to Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders, the Stanford seminar for aspiring entrepreneurs. ETL is presented by STVP, the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center, and BASES, the Business Association for Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. I'm Anthony Ruth. I'm the Director of Strategic Communications at STVP. And today I have the pleasure of welcoming Sarah LaMason to ETL. Sarah is the co-founder and CEO of Diac Cycle, which is pioneering sustainable chemistry by building breakthrough technologies that convert industrial carbon emissions into everyday chemicals with unprecedented energy and cost savings. In 2021, Sarah received the L'Oreal UNESCO French Young Talent Award for her research in CO2 conversion and received the French National iLab Innovation Prize with her teammate, Dr. David Wakerly. She was selected as a Breakthrough Energy Innovation Fellow, and that was in 2021, and featured in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in 2023. Sarah also holds a bachelor's from École Polytechnique in France and a master's from the University of Cambridge. And she carried out doctoral and postdoctoral studies between Stanford and Collège de France. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Sarah. Well, hi everyone, it's a great pleasure uh, to be here. And uh, I mean, as it was said, I'm particularly pleased to be here after uh, spending two years here in, uh, between like 2019 and 2020, which were like really amazing research years with my co-founder David. So yeah, very, very excited to, to, be, to be discussing what we have been doing so, so far. And so today my goal is for you to leave with like free uh, takeaways. Um, so first, an overview of like, the carbon utilization field and a uh, high-level vision of the different technologies and approaches. Uh, second, an overview of what we are doing in that field at Dioxycle. And finally, uh, some learnings uh, gathered in the making um, for, from, uh, from myself as a researcher transitioning to a climate tech entrepreneur. So yeah, so first, what is carbon capture and utilization and why does it matter? So as you know, we do need to drastically reduce our carbon emissions and remove CO2 actually from the atmosphere to stay way, way below uh, the two degrees, uh, two degrees Celsius trajectory. And so here, uh, as you see in the background, uh, the, the, striped, uh, the stripes, the color stripe represent the level, the atmospheric level of, uh, of CO2 that have been going from 280 ppms uh, in the uh, 1800s pre-industrial area to uh, right now 420 ppm, which is far above the 350 ppm level where you start to have adverse climate impacts uh, and all these uh, greenhouse gases effects. And so uh, one question some of you might have here, if you're familiar with the question of like climate change, is why, uh, why have, have I put like two degrees C's as a target and not 1.5 degrees C's, which was the, the target uh, set by the Paris Agreement in 2015. And the reason is, uh, I mean, quite sad and simple. It's because we've, I mean, there is actually an open debate right now on whether we can uh, still reach the 1.5 degree C's uh, because like we have been too slow already over the past years at reducing our carbon emissions. And so it's really a question of uh, now trying to limit this, uh, this uh, global warming to 1.7, 1.8 degree C's, which is already going to be a challenge. And so, you know, how do we inflect that trajectory? How do we reach net zero by 2050? 
Well, I have a good news, uh, uh, which is the fact that the first answer to climate change is sobriety. And it's like each of us who can have an impact, you and me, uh, by changing our daily behavior and, uh, you know, uh, reducing uh, the frequency of our flights, eating less meat and doing different things like this. And so this is this 5% is the projection of emission reduction we can target by 2050 by just uh, sobriety. And so just to give you a, a few order of magnitude, um, today an, uh, an average, uh, the average carbon footprint of an American is between 15 and 20 tons of CO2 per year. And so we emit equally one ton of CO2 when we do uh, one uh, round trip flight between New York City and San Francisco, when we eat twice a week uh, a steak, beef steak, uh, all of that for a year, or when we commute 15 miles per day uh, to work for one year. And so by changing any of these behavior, by cutting down uh, any of these, we can actually already diminish by 6% our personal ca carbon footprint, and of course even more if we do all these different things. The second, uh, the second path we have to reduce these emissions is through the massive deployment of existing technologies like electrification for industrial usage, for example, uh, the, the deployment of uh, the use of a heat pump in your house, or uh, like the electrification, as you, as you know that, um, uh, the, sorry, the development of renewable uh, uh, energy, uh, developing uh, solar uh, or, or windmill. And so again, to give you a few order of magnitudes, uh, by upgrading a house with a heat pump, you can save up to eight tons of CO2. So quite significant, again, if you compare that to the carbon footprint of an American, uh, or uh, if we shift now to 100% renewable, uh, our own electricity, personal electricity consumption, we can save up to four tons of CO2 uh, per, I mean, uh, per year. And the last, uh, the last thing, and here is a, it's actually a picture of one of our lab. Uh, we have two labs, one in France, in Paris, and one in Menlo Park. And uh, the, last, the last one, the last option is by, um, is by using technologies that are currently still under development. And so, of course, we need to deploy massive research to, to, uh, to deploy these technologies so that they meet uh, this 45% reduction target by 2050. And so, uh, as I said, um, like the, these, uh, these new technologies are going are gonna to be needed to cut down the emission of uh, what, is what are called hard to habit sectors, which are the industries that are really difficult to decarbonize, that you cannot electrify easily, uh, etc. And so these hard to habit sectors include the following cement, steel and aluminum, aviation, chemicals, heavy road and shipping. And so, for example, the, the reason why steel is hard to decarbonize is that is because uh, in steel making, the first step of the process is actually the, the conversion of iron ore into iron. And so to do that, you basically need to pull out uh, an oxidant from your iron ore. And uh, the way it's done right now, it's in big blast furnaces where you have a reducing gas, such as carbon monoxide that is produced from coal in situ, that is going to pull out this oxygen from your iron ore to just leave behind the, the, metal, uh, the metal iron. And so you're converting your iron ore into iron, but in turn, you're emitting one molecule of CO2. And so it's very difficult to decarbonize because now like you're, I mean, you have to really change the full process if you want to uh, stop emitting this, this CO2 molecule, which means 
reinvesting a lot of capex and really changing your infrastructure. And so um, basically the way we are going to decarbonize these different industries is either by developing completely new processes, and so it's done in steel right now. I mean, there are a lot of projects going on to uh, replace these uh, carbon monoxide reducing gas by hydrogen, or by uh, deploying sort of ad hoc solution, which is like, for example, carbon capture, utilization, and storage, uh, also referred to as CCUS. And so in carbon capture, utilization, and storage, what happens is that you have a first step of capture. So you're going to capture either like your emission uh, on the point source. So as I was talking about, like for steel, you would capture the CO2 emissions. Um, and it's very concentrated emission, so it's ki kind of like energy efficient. Or you have another pass where you're now ca capturing CO2 directly, directly from the air. Of course, it's much more diluted as a stream, and so it's much harder to do in, uh, in terms of energy consumption. Once you have your, your carbon emission, your CO2, you're going to transport that either through pipeline or, um, or through a ship. And you have two options. Either you're going to store it underground uh, in geological formation, onshore or offshore, or you can utilize it. And so if we zoom in uh, on the utilization, well, there are many things you can do with, with utilization. Um, so these are all the different, all the, all the blue items here. And so the first thing you can do, which is the oldest way of using CO2, is using it as is. So basically, you just take your CO2 molecule and you do something with it as is. And so the first thing, uh, the f most obvious thing that you can do is use it for food and beverage beverages, uh, for example, to make the, your soda sparkling. Uh, then there are industrial use, it, uh, use of it, such as enhanced oil recovering, recovery where you're basically pumping CO2 down depleted uh, oil fields to push uh, more oil out of it and hopefully leave the, the CO2 in there. It's quite a controversial use, of course, uh, but uh, it's, not, it's not the topic today. And, and so like, apart from using it as is, you can also convert it. And so uh, in terms of conversion, the less, uh, I mean, the, the, the use that requires the less energy is by mineralizing it. So you're basically going to convert your gaseous CO2 in a mineralized form. And this is often like, useful to make additional building material. And if you're now like, uh, willing to do some, uh, a product that is a bit upgraded, you can go to synthetic fuel. But of course, it's going to consume uh, more energy. Uh, or finally, you can convert that into, uh, into chemicals. And so now if we, if we zoom in again on the chemicals, um, it's actually very interesting. And carbon utilization is particularly suited uh, for the chemical industry to reinvent the chemical industry, which is uh, the, the industry of carbon. You know, right now you can't make textile fiber, plastics, windows frame without, without carbon. It's a question of matter, you know. So um, that's, that's really where carbon utilization makes a lot of sense. Reinventing a carbon cycle where you source like sustainably your carbon in order to invent everyday products. And so on, on the, I mean, what is interesting about that and a, a good way to phrase it, and hopefully you can remember that, is, you know, the chemical industry cannot be uh, decarbonized because it's the industry of carbon, but it can be defossilized. And by this, what we mean is that, you know, when you look at today's, um, in 2020, the source of carbon in uh, the, the world's 
the world's uh, chemical production, you see that 85% of this carbon is co coming from a fossil source. We can, uh, there's a lot of study, studies that say that you know, by 2050 we could completely displace that proportion of fossil source of carbon with sustainable sources of carbon and really reach a world where you know, your carbon come from either recycled plastic or, or material, uh, but also um, carbon emission derived carbon and bio-based, I mean, biomass derived carbon. And so if we now zoom in again on this thing um, and, 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 and really deep dive on how uh, we can make uh, a, sustainable, a sustainable chemical, well, the, 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 the way to look at it is very simple. You just have to think about what is a chemical. A chemical is basically a long carbon-based molecule, I mean, a carbon-based molecule that is filled with energy. And so understand where your energy comes from, you understand how you can make a chemical and a sustainable chemical if your energy is sustainable. And so on this graph, basically on this diagram, uh, I've represented just different sources of energy to make this, uh, this chemical. So on li in light green, you see biomass fermentation. Here, your energy source is your biomass. It's already fill filled with energy. And so you're, you can just ba basically take that biomass and further upgrade it to a chemical. Then on the dark purple, you have the hydrogenation technology. Here, the energy source you're using is hydrogen. And so you're basically gonna use hydrogen, combine it with CO2 carbon emission uh, in a hydrogenation reactor, sometimes with some heat, some pressure. And you're gonna really use that energy carrier that is hydrogen to um, re-energize your carbon emission and convert it back into a chemical. And so um, on, the, on the dark green uh, diagram, you have, um, you, this is biological processes. So here, again, you can take carbon emissions, but this time you're gonna basically use bugs that are capable of sourcing their energy into like sort of metabolic energy source. It can be a sugar, it can be anything in their environment they are capable of digesting. And with that energy, they are going to be able, again, to convert your carbon emission into a chemical. And finally, when your source of energy is electricity, well, you're, you're, you're in presence of electrolysis. And so that's basically what we do at Dioxycle. So we develop breakthrough electrolysis technology to convert uh, carbon emission using just renewable energy uh, into sustainable feedstocks, and in particular, chemicals. So I think by now you've you've uh, understood that uh, society does need to reduce carbon emission and, uh, and still needs to produce cost-effective chemical. And so that's what we are focused on with a, a big emph emphasis on the cost-effectiveness of the process. Because you know, if you really want to trigger fast adoption of a technology, you have to align economic incentive with the environmental incentive, or at least that's what we strongly believe at Eurocycle. And so the way we position ourselves is that we uh, we provide uh, a solution to help carbon emitters decarbonize uh, their, their process cost effectively by basically helping them to reduce their emission while profiting uh, from uh, the sustainable chemical they are producing. In other, I mean, another way to present it is that we deploy this uh, solution on site, modular solution on site, where we are going to capture the emission and convert this emission into low carbon chemicals. And again, the big emphasis on what we are doing is that we are uh, bringing this technology with a uh, no or negative green premium, which is 
cost competitivity versus fossil, whereas all the current sustainable alternatives for this process have a green premium, which is an overhead cost compared to uh, the fossil cost of your chemical, which is ethylene. Um, and so we start, as I said, with ethylene, uh, which is the most produced organic chemical in the world, used in textile fibers, in uh, PVC, in PE, uh, polyethylene piping, plastic packaging for you know, many, many different usage. And because of the size of the ethylene market and the carbon footprint of the ethylene making process, by displacing the way we are making ethylene, we can actually cut uh, the equivalent of 1% of the world emission and look at a $170 billion opportunity. So it's really like an untapped environmental and economic opportunity. And the reason it's untapped, it's because it's, uh, I mean, there's a huge barrier to entry, technological barrier to entry uh, to actually do that cost effectively. So our team, uh, I mean, we were introduced before, but David and I, uh, we co-founded uh, the company. So in January 2021, after uh, five years of academic research uh, uh, between Collège de France, uh, Cambridge and Stanford, and now we bring together 20 people. Some of them are in the room uh, from 10 nationalities, comprising 70% PhD, because as I said, the biggest barrier to entry is technological. Uh, and we operate from two sites in Paris and Menlo Park. And so in terms of funding, we've raised 26 million uh, to date. Uh, latest round being um, our Series A, led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Lower Carbon Capital, and with the participation of Gigascale Capital. And we were very lucky to be part of the Breakthrough Energy Fellowship before. And so how does it work? Um, so uh, how does it work? So basically, we developed this novel type of low temperature carbon electrolyzer, where we fit in carbon emissions, water, and uh, these are going to be exposed to what we call catalytic core, which are like active surface areas, uh, which are going to be able to convert this carbon emission uh, into the product, the main product, ethylene, and some byproduct using uh, electricity. And so each catalytic core comprises three elements, an anode that is doing an oxidation, uh, separated by a membrane from a cathode doing a reduction. And so after we pile them, we pile these individual cells on top of one another uh, be, uh, in between these metallic plates that are called bipolar plates. And the role of the bipolar plates is to funnel the reactant in and the product out of, uh, of this stack. And so what's uh, I mean, what's unique about us, uh, apart from the, the product we are making uh, in the electrolysis field, is that uh, we, we innovate at all levels. Since day one, we had a very integrated approach, uh, innovated on the component level, developing high energy efficiency catalysts, super low cost membranes at the system level by developing novel stack design, which are extremely energy efficient and reach high yields, and uh, a software layer also like continuously improving the, the operation of the stack. And finally, we also innovate at the in industrial level by developing integration schemes to really like make sure we integrate these technology within existing processes so that we minimize the overall cost and we also valorize trended assets, which are like the industrial assets uh, you, you, have, uh, you have on these plants. And so by doing that, we are the, really the first one to put forward uh, value the following value proposition, which is like producing sustainable ethylene at, uh, at fossil ethylene price. And so if you remember my, uh, my little diagram from before, uh, if you want to produce sustainable ethylene, again, you have these, different, these four different pathways based on the way you're uh, feeding, I mean, you're, you're, you're bringing the energy to, to make the, your final molecule. But as you see, none of them, whether it's like biomass, from biomass, from hydrogenation, or, or from biological process, 
Um, I mean, none of them right now is cost competitive with Fossil. They all suffer from a green premium. Uh, and on, you know, by contrast, uh, we, we come in with like a, a value proposition of no or negative green premium, which again, uh, we believe is going to be key to trigger large adoption. And so, um, I mean, this is again a, um, a huge opportunity in terms of like environmental impact and economic impact, because um, right now ethylene is made through steam cracking of, uh, of fossil, uh, fossil feedstock, whether it's naphtha or ethane. And the carbon, the carbon footprint is that of that process is between 0.9 and 1.7 tons of CO2 per ton of ethylene. Instead, uh, not only, um, you know, by using our process, not only we cut down these this, uh, process emissions, uh, but we also are going to now, you know, take some other carbon source from another emission and embed it into the ethylene so that the net difference between this process and the, and the fossil process is between like three and five tons of CO2 per ton of ethylene we produced, depending on the carbon footprint of our electricity. And so in terms of like um, total carbon impact uh, potential, given that the, the ethylene production in the world is around 200 million ton, I mean, you do the math, it's somewhere uh, around 700 million tons of CO2 per year that can be displaced, which is over 1% of the world's emission, far over 1% of the world's emission. So that's what we do. Uh, and so now, in terms of like um, the, the, the learnings, I just wanted to give you like a kind of unpolished, <laughs> unpolished, uh, some unpolished opinions about the, the traps uh, to avoid when you're, when you're starting a, a climate tech startup. So, you know, I, I was there before, uh, like you, uh, finishing my academic studies and you know, the goal is to, I mean, what is success when, when you're starting a climate tech startup? Success is developing a, a company that is capable of cutting million tons of CO2 per year. So, you know, that's, that's the definition of success. And so there's a lot of things that can happen along the way. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, these are my opinions. So I think the, the first trap uh, that we can fall into, you know, when you, when you come out from school is that you think you, you know a lot of things because you went to a top school. And so uh, I'm, I'm saying that laughing because, you know, it's actually a good thing sometimes to, 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 to be very confident uh, when you don't know a lot of your industry because sometimes you probably wouldn't take the risk of starting a company if you knew like how hard it is later and how little you actually knew back then about everything that was waiting for you. So I would say that was the, that is kind of the, the first trap that can, uh, that can happen. And so my advice for this uh, would be to always keep a, an underdog mindset. And by this, I mean, um, don't assume that academic knowledge is real life knowledge. Although it's very powerful, very important to have it. Um, there's so many other dimension in the, I mean, in the rest of the world to optimize for and uh, that are needed to develop, I mean, to have a successful career and to do something uh, meaningful that I think it's, it's really important to keep this growth mindset and keep uh, asking for advice all the time early on. A second thing I, I have perhaps for people joining companies uh, early on, especially in startups, is don't care too much about the title. You know, I mean, there's a, always a lot of like inflation around titles, but actually what really matters, I believe, is like the team you work with and, you know, the, mis the mission and like how much you believe the team you're working with is capable of delivering on that mission. 
So I think that's really, that's really important. And the third thing I would say uh, that is also probably quite controversial uh, about, about salary, uh, especially if there are MBA in the room, I, I've heard they, they were trained to like negotiate their salaries, is to uh, not to negotiate too much like salaries at the beginning, uh, but instead like getting the company over deliver and then negotiate. Because we, you know, as a, as a, as a founder, I see that a lot of people in the company, when, when they're in and they're delivering, they are so good at what they do, like you really don't want to lose them. And then they have much more leverage to actually like really ask for, for something. And, you know, if, if, if you negotiate too early, I would say that um, it's a missed opportunity for some startup where, you know, they, they perhaps don't have a lot of resources at the beginning. Uh, so they want to make sure they don't take too much risks in terms of like hiring. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, I think that's a, an interesting way to look at, to look about it. The second trap, I think, especially when you're a technical founder is, uh, to start your company, not talking to client until your product is ready. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, like in that case, I think, you know, you can get in the, the trap of, you know, working on your own to perfect the tech for a lot of years and actually going in, in the wrong, direc wrong direction, spending a lot of resources and actually doing something that doesn't answer any needs. And so my advice for that uh, would be to just like start talking to clients and have this like very nice cycle where you talk to clients, you make sure there is an actual need for what you're doing. Uh, then you, you look at technology as a mean to get there uh, and really as a mean to develop a product. And then, you know, based on that, you get some contracts or letter of, of intent early on that allows you to, to raise funds and attract talent, to have more resources to develop your technology. And so as a result, you're, improv your, you're improving your product and scaling it up and you, and you go again. You go back, see your client as that is this time your product in, is answering their needs and you improve based on that. So that was for the second trap. Um, the, third, the third trap, um, and again, I think quite controversial is, uh, you know, uh, you've done all these things. Now you've talked to all these clients, you've started pitching this to a lot of uh, venture capital, and now you like, uh, you like talking too much and you lose sight of what you're here for. And, uh, and so I think it's important to remind that, you know, climate tech needs much more science than talk. And by this, I mean, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a type of industry where uh, like making an iPod where like the idea of the product in itself is quite genius. Like here, the, the problem and the need to solve is quite obvious. Like we have to reduce a carbon emission. Industrial players are happy to do so, but they need something cost competitive. That's quite simple. And the question is who can do it like cost efficiently, energy efficiently, so that they will adopt that uh, at, a, at a price that is competitive with what they used to do before. So this is, I think quite important. And I would say, you know, based on that, the, the main thing, if you want to work in that field uh, to do is to really get technical. And by, by this, I don't mean uh, just scientifically technical, just like knowing your industry, understanding your industry, understanding even how like sales are done in, in your industry, but like really understanding uh, your industry from like a process perspective, etc. And so I think that, you know, in, in climate tech, and it's pretty obvious, but technical breakthrough are the main unfair advantages.
you know, you're always asked, oh, what is, what is your unfair advantages? And in climate tech, I, I have a hard time thinking of any other, like any other unfair advantage uh, other than, than a technical one. Uh, so that you have something that just is, is actually better. Um, uh, the second one, uh, I mean, the second thing also is, you, I mean, you see that when you talk to, to VCs and you talk to clients, a working pilot, you know, is much more convincing than a slide. So it's also why I think uh, really like trying to deliver technically very fast is really important. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and so that's, that's really important. And so to be, uh, again, a bit, uh, a bit boring, but I think um, in terms of like thinking about, thinking about a career, being mission driven, uh, when you really think about it, what, what does it mean? I think it's to, it's to really apply your, your, your skills where they are the most valuable. Um, and so it, perhaps it doesn't mean founding a company and perhaps it's, uh, it means like joining a company that is actually already answering uh, I mean, working on the, on the topic uh, you're working on. When we started the company, um, DirectCycle, there was one company in the, in the US. I mean, most of, most of what was done was in the US, in America. There was nothing in Europe. We wanted to start something in Europe. And so we were like, okay, perhaps we, we do have to start uh, on our own. But, you know, like we really asked ourselves, is there another force we can join to help before, before starting a company? Because there's a, you know, because there's a lot of hype around climate tech. And I think we, I mean, it shouldn't be because it's not, it's, it's not really cool. It's, it's just hard and it needs to happen. So we really have to make sure we allocate the resources where, where they're impactful. And then, so once you've done all this, uh, I think uh, one of the traps you can face is you don't ask yourself the, the hard questions. Uh, so now, um, now the problem is, you know, um, if you're a technical founders, uh, founder in particular, you have a technology you've been working on for five years, you really like it, it's, uh, you think it's really great, and you, know, you, really, you really want to push this technology. And I think uh, you have to make sure you don't blindly hang on to, uh, to this technology and uh, instead actually analyze it, compare it, benchmark it, and perhaps even change it if you need to change it. And um, I'm, I'm saying that not lightly, and uh, you know, at the beginning, we started with, uh, with David uh, working on CO2 to CO, so conversion of carbon dioxide to carbon monoxide, which is a precursor for jet fuel. And so like, we really pushed the, like, the performance of the technology to top level. We, went, like, we really delivered on the different milestones we have set for ourselves. And at the end of the day, we did the, we did the math, we did the techno-economics, and even then, with the best, like, best performance uh, possible, we, we realized you know, perhaps it wasn't, it wasn't like, so better than other options that people would actually take the scale-up risk and pay for that scale-up risk. And so at that point in the time, which was very early on, we were like, okay, <laughs> let's go back to the drawing board. And we looked at the different products we could make and we decided to go to ethylene, which is a much higher added value product, uh, harder to make, but we were like, if there's a play, it's there, it's where it's hard, where no other technology can, can, can have a, I mean, can deliver on that. And so I think that's really, really important. And not only you have to like coldly look at your like own technology block, but you also have to coldly look at the full process and make sure you look at the full process. When you think about our technology electrolysis, so you're converting, uh, you know, you're, you're, con you're making a product, but it's like mixed with unreacted, uh, unreacted carbon emission. And so, you know, there's, there's always a question of, you know, 
you want to separate this, this unreacted reactant from the product. And so there's a balance, for example, to strike between the yield of your reaction and the separation cost at the end. And so you want to really make sure you're analyzing your full process and not just focusing on optimizing one thing in the middle uh, so that at the end you're really optimizing for industrially relevant uh, metrics. And so I would say if you're a scientist, perhaps bringing a process engineer early on uh, so that uh, someone is really like um, telling you about the balance of plant, which is you know, all the auxiliary systems that are around a central technology. So, uh, so now you've made all these things, you've, you've bet on the right technology, it's, it's, it's working, but you know, you've made the analysis of the process and you realize it's, a bit, it's still a bit expensive. And so one of the traps you can fall in right now is to think that people will actually pay more for a sustainable alternative. And they will probably do if it's like for, um, you know, so like a customer product that is very high end, but like most of these products, they have tiny markets. Uh, and so you're not going to have a big carbon impact by addressing a tiny market. And so like the mistake is when you're like, oh, I'm going to make ethylene or e-fuel and it's going to cost like four times the price of fossil fuel. And it's going to be fine because people are going to pay forever. The fact is, you know, perhaps the government is going to subsidize for a while, but at some point, the most energy efficient and cost efficient technology will have to win and you better be on the side of like the most efficient technology or have started doing something else at that point. And I think this we can kind of summarize by this, this sort of diagram where, you know, you have on one side the goodwill and there is goodwill in the world, that's great. Uh, and you know, climate philanthropies are in this category and it's really important the work they are doing. But you have, I mean, I think it's really important, but that's my opinion, to see business as a separate category and not try and mix these two categories and see really climate tech businesses in the business categories where you really have to have like economic performance in addition to your, uh, to your sustain, like sustainability performance. And I think the danger zone is in the middle, you know, uh, and it's, it's when people assume you're going to have large long-term green premium, which is like people paying much more, uh, a long time. And so that's, I mean, I was saying for sustainable aviation fuel, for example, well, I, we really need to, to take these, the cost of making them down because, uh, I mean, are we going to, are we going to subsidize them forever? What is going to happen? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. Of course, if there's a price on carbon, uh, then your, your non-sustainable alternative goes up in price. And so now you have a possibility of saying it's cost competitive, but we have to make sure that uh, you're, you're, you're actually answering the, the right, uh, I mean, making the equation work. And so, yeah, and so now you've done all this, uh, you have actually a business, you, I mean, you, you're sure that if your technology is working, then, uh, then the, the, the economic uh, incentive will be aligned, uh, and then you have a, another trap that you can still fall into is that um, deep down, you know, you realize this technology won't scale, for example. So, you know, on the lab bench, it's working. Uh, and and if, if everything scaled, then it would be working and it would be like viable, but actually it doesn't scale. And then like one of the problem is uh, if you don't give up and if you keep going. And I think there's a, a cool citation quote from Phil Knight, the creator of uh, uh, a Nike, who said, uh, sometimes you have to give up, sometimes knowing when to give up, when to try something else is genius. And I think it's true, uh, especially in a climate tech where 
we really need the uh, people, I mean, we really need the talents to be funneled to the, to the, to the technologies at scale so that we meet our, our emission reduction goals. And so, um, you know, thinking about that, uh, I've, I've thought about like a sort of framework of what are the good reasons to quit and what are the bad, uh, sorry, what are the good reasons to keep going with a tech uh, or a business idea and what are the bad reasons to keep going. So I think the, the, the good reasons to keep going uh, are first, this technology is fundamentally sound. Like, you know, like fusion, like it's, it's gonna be very hard, but you know it can work and it's incredible what it can do. And it, it just like, it just can work fundamentally. Then the economics can work soonish or, you know, or you have a plan to really back that up for a long time uh, in terms of like funding. And finally, you haven't tried everything. It's not working yet, but you haven't tried everything. And so there's still hope. And perhaps, you know, you're one experiment away from, from nailing it down. So these are the good reasons. And now the bad reasons to keep going are probably like first in line, the sunk cost. You've invested so much energy that you can't let it go. Like it's like five years of your life and you're like, oh my God, like if I stop doing that, what am I going to do? Uh, and I, it's, it's a terrible reason because like, I mean, the, the costs in the future are so much higher <laughs> uh, compared to the ones you've already paid for. Um, then you told the other it will work. So now you, you don't really want to, you know, admit it won't work. Or even worse, you told yourself it would work and you don't even admit to yourself it, it would work. So I think these are, these are the thing uh, with Dave early on. We've kind of made a promise that if, you know, one day we stopped believing that we could make this work, we would just stop and, you know, go work with a, with a company that, you know, had, had a better, better idea, like simply said, and like, you know, that we would kind of watch out for one another egos getting in the way of actually doing something good in a reasonable time scale. So, so now, <laughs> so, okay, so you've passed all this, uh, you still think it's, uh, it's going to work and there's a, a final trap which is, you know, it can work, it's fundamentally sound, etc. But now you lose face because you're tired. You're really tired, you know, it's possible, but not, nothing, nothing is working in the lab and you don't know why. And um, yeah, and so there's a, I mean, uh, a, a friend of my entrepreneur, uh, Sebastian Boyer, uh, um, gave me a, a good, a good uh, image to think about that, uh, which is like the curse of complex systems. So, you know, you have to imagine your system when you're, you're working on a complex technology as a sort of series of, of components and they are all in series. And as you know, in a, from your electricity process, when, when one thing is not working, then the, the series line is not working. Um, and so here on this graph, you basically represent the probability of a system comprising n components of working uh, based on the probability of one component working. And so you see that when you have one component, n equal one, it's very easy. I mean, there's a, I mean, it's one, I mean, it's linear, of course. But then as you increase the number of components, there are more and more probability that the series of components won't work at a given probability of one component working. And so you end up when you have a lot of components uh, to, you end up by having like a very long portion, you know, uh, I mean, a very long time where, uh, where your system is not working, although you're like incremental, incrementally optimizing each of your components. And you have to really reach a threshold 
where you know above that threshold, above that like probability of working of one component, the series starts working. And I think that's uh, I mean that's a very important thing, and we had that a lot also uh, at I mean at the beginning, and I mean we still have <laughs> uh, systems that don't work. And you know you 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 test one hypothesis, you think it's not like you think the result is negative, but it's actually kind of a false negative because there's still something else that is not working. And uh, yeah, and that's uh, yeah that's really hard. And it, the answer to that is to keep keep pushing. And actually, there's a second part to that quote of Phil Knight when he says, sometimes you have to give up. Sometimes knowing when to give up, when to try something else is genius, which is giving up doesn't mean stopping. Don't even stop. And that's, for the, that's the answer to the last trap. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much for coming. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on a public-private partnership? And have you explored private partners like Generate Capital, which is a public benefit corporation that turns technology projects into infrastructure so customers don't have to take risks they don't want to take or spend money they don't have to? For reference, Generate Capital operates the electric batteries on Stanford's very own Marguerite buses circling campus right now. Um. Yeah, so uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not familiar with Generate, um, but um, well, I would say like public, I mean, if you're mentioning a partly public funding, I think it's really important to bring in like both public and, and private capital, especially for like first of their kind pilots. Uh, I mean, for example, there's a, you know, a, a program break for energy catalysts uh, that uh, fund first of their kind large plants. And so it allows to de-risk a part of these uh, of these plans for the for the industrial partner who is like co-funding uh, the the rest. I mean, it's not really public because it's a private institution, but it's like philanthropic money. So um, yeah, that would be my answer. I'm not sure. I'm I'm, I'm replying. I'm sorry. And so for the audience, I know a little bit, but if you were to frame your journey, because you talked about starting in academia, and where you are now is in a pre-commercial, commercial, on that spectrum of where are you on the journey of really uh, generating revenue as a company? Great question. So we are, we are pre-commercial. We do generate some revenues <laughs> through like feasibility study and really early like customer engagement. Um, but so the, the goal of our Series A is to do our first industrial pilot. So that's, that's happening now. <laughs> Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much um, for your talk. I think it was very inspiring hearing kind of your journey and then all the traps that we can fall into as um, founders. I had kind of two questions. What do you mean by being technical? Do you mean like pursuing a PhD in academia or spending like 20 years in industry? Um, and then my other question, which you kind of touched on, is do you believe that most people innovating in the climate tech space have to be coming from um, very like research heavy backgrounds or other other ways in terms of like innovating business models or finding different paths to value um, Yeah Yeah, great question. So yeah, when I say technical, you know that I didn't say get scientific because I I, I was actually on purpose not trying not to say like do a PhD That's the only way to get there. It's more like know your industry really well like, you know, really understand like um, I mean 
spend a lot of time in industry, I think is, is a good idea, like first, uh, you know, especially on, on chemical, chemical engineering stuff, you know, uh, you probably want to have done some process engineering somewhere, chemical engineering to understand how it works, which we didn't. <laughs> but, you know, so early on we were like, okay, we have to hire a process engineer, we have to hire someone who is very good at stacks, we have to do all these things. So, I mean, get technical in the sense that spend a lot of time really making sure you have all these, uh, these skills in your team if you don't have them yourself. Um, I would say though, like, I think it's really hard to hire people who are very, very technical if you're not yourself like capable of really like pitching them something very strong. Um, so um, yeah, any, any knowledge you can acquire is, 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 is really good. Then you have other, other like, version where, I mean, other routes where you can uh, start climate, I mean, businesses which have a climate impact, which are a bit less um, technology heavy, but that's, you know, that's a different story. And here it's more like you, you can start it if you have a great idea and that's easy. I forgot your second question. I'm so sorry. Touch on it, but um, are most like climate innovations based on like research and academia, like in terms of innovations, or is it have you seen like successful climate startups who are like in the software space, maybe like car markets or other like innovating like business models? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff to do in, in the software industry as well. Then it's just a uh, it's, it's just I think it's, I mean, carbon accounting, for example, is very crowded, I think, as a, as a space. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of things that works very well, like Watershed or things like, like these kind of companies, they are great. Uh, it's very different. I, I'm just saying, you know, like a lot of the things we need uh, is also very, I mean, very industrial. Unfortunately, it, it represents a lot of the, of, like in terms of proportion of the em emissions, it's a lot. So we probably, need a lot of people to kind of sacrifice and go in there, you know. Thank you. All right, you guys, that is the end of today's session. Can we please give Sarah a round of applause? The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.